Our text for meditation, this 17th Sunday after Trinity, is our Gospel reading from Luke chapter 14, beginning in the first verse. Hear the word of our Lord. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, unfortunately, I didn't really have time to write a full manuscript today, or at all this week, for this sermon. It is a bit impromptu. I just had to do some thinking on it and some prayer, and I hope that God is the one doing preaching here instead of me. I pray that he will answer my prayer in that and deliver a good message to everyone. Now, typically, when you prepare a sermon, it is intensive study and prayer and self-application and self-examination. You are in a state of almost monkishness if you are going to write a full, effective sermon. But that got me thinking about monkishness itself, the monastics, the people who go out into their small communities, run and organized and fed and paid for by the church, whichever church that is, they get together, they pray the canonical hours, they engage in fasting and spiritual discipline and loads of singing and hymns and chanting, scripture reading, study, and yes, even confession of all of their sins, which of course has no end, so being a monk is typically seen as a lifelong endeavor. Truly, in theory, you could be a monk for only a year, or maybe five years, but at some point, the church, the church, whichever church that is, is going to approach you and say, okay, pal, you're in good standing with the church. You've been a monk for X number of years, or you've been a nun for X number of years, and it's time to either put up or shut up, pal. Either you go back to being normal laity, or you find yourself being a monk for life, a lifelong monastic vow. Now, this kind of community is not exactly biblical. We really have to be honest about that. If we look at any institution of the church from our church history, the history of Christianity, we have to every now and then wrestle with the 
biblical or non-biblical origins of that tradition, that discipline, or that community. Why do we have Christmas trees with lights on them? Well, Martin Luther put a bunch of candles on a Christmas tree saying, oh, look, this reminds me of the faithfulness of God, and it's evergreen. It's an evergreen tree, so we see that there is eternal life symbolized in here by the birth of Christ who came to save us from, you know, the world, death, damnation, the devil, everything, to give us eternal life. I can go out, look at my Bible, I can see what Luther was getting at and go, okay, yeah, this, this checks out. This is an acceptable tradition. Let's do that for monks and monkishness, monasticism and the nuns and the cascading orders of orders of orders of various monastic figures living the eremitic life. Let's see here. Jesus says in the Great Commission, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do monks all do that? Does their purpose here, the so-called interior way, where you're sitting in a cave, does that obey that commandment? Or are there monks out there who have said, No, thank you, Jesus. I don't want to go into all nations and baptize people and teach them. I'm going to sit in a cave. I'm going to sit in my cell. I'd rather pray the canonical hours. Of course, this isn't every monk. There are friars who served as priests in various parishes. That happens, yes. But when you look at the isolationist communities out there, like Mount Athos, how much are they actually discipling people? How much are they actually baptizing people? Or do they see it as, well, we're, we're fulfilling this role when we accept other monks. When people become monks, that's when we disciple them. Okay. What's the uh, two greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, by all means, I'm sure plenty of nuns out there can tell you, oh yes, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've dedicated my entire life to him. Look at all these prayers I have, and look at all these chantings that I've done. Look at how much I have fasted. I love the Lord. But what about their neighbor? If you're alone in a cell somewhere, if you're sitting there eating sand in a cave, are you loving your neighbor? Are you really holy? If you don't have any neighbors to speak of because you ran away from society to go live in a monastery, and you might point me to all the charitable stuff monks and nuns do uh, out there in their organizations, but do you really have to be a monk or a nun to do that sort of thing? There are absolutely some of these Trappist monks out there that make beer to make their living, but I'm sure some of that money goes to charity too. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Maybe there are truly monastic communities out there and monks out there and nuns out there that really do live a solid Christian life, obeying God's commandments, the Holy Ten Commandments and the two greatest commandments, listening to the teachings of Jesus Christ and doing their best to engage with the world around them in an evangelistic fashion. But no matter how many exceptions to the rule you're going to show me, no matter how many exceptions to my qualms you can demonstrate with shining examples of holiness out there, that's not going to convince me that monasticism and asceticism is a good thing, given that the very foundation of it is, well, unbiblical. I want to get away from the world and 
focus on my spiritual life so I can save my soul. That's basically what the monastic thesis is. I want to go inward. I want to go out from the world and go inward into the depths of my soul and find out what I can do to be saved. Listen, the exceptions you can point me to of godly men and women in these communities are going to be in spite of that kind of foundation. Now, this used to be something almost commanded once a week in the Sabbath. The way the Pharisees had made people go into monk mode once a week during the Sabbath where you can't do anything. Now, of course, there's some things you can do. If we excuse it, God will understand. But Lord knows, if you uh, pick up a piece of yeast in between cracks in your floor, that's work. You can't do that. You need to spend all of the Sabbath day in prayer and in thinking and in song and maybe Torah study. And if you're a priest, maybe you could do sacrifices on the Sabbath. But really, at the end of the day, man, you can't do nothing. You shouldn't do anything. And now we see Jesus saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to do something good? And of course, they just stay silent. Now, there are times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when our Lord Jesus does find every now and then somebody accusing him of working on the Sabbath while he's healing. But ultimately, these guys are so devoted to devotion that they're angry, quiet angry, seething that Jesus would go so far as to love his neighbor on the Sabbath. My goodness, how dare you? And so they're angry. Now Jesus says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Hey, don't you have things and people and animals that you love that you would help if there was an emergency? Is it bad to do that on the Sabbath? Now, we Christians, of course, in our history have never been so foolish as to make devotion the whole of 100% of our life and claim that that is obedience to God, right? Oh, wait, no. We've done just as badly with our monks. But not just badly, more clever than the Pharisees, you see. We say to Jesus, joke's on you, Jesus. I don't have a son to pull him out of a well. <laughs> I'm celibate. I don't have an ox. In our Eremitic community, we are the oxen. We do all of our own farming because we want to work off our sins with really heavy gardening. I don't know if you've ever seen that meme of this really built, super strong looking monk out there who's lifting up rocks and he says, so many rocks to lift, just like my sins. Okay, so everybody in the monastic community seems to have a very, very high emphasis on the second part of our gospel reading where our Lord Jesus tells a parable to those who were invited. In verse 7 of Luke 14, it says it is a parable. We are not going to be taking what he says here at this face value secular lesson as though Jesus was just saying, hey guys, don't you want to be honored? Don't you want to be in a high place in society? No, it's a parable. It's something that tells us there's a deeper meaning here. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And all the monks raise their hands and go, Amen. I am the king of humility. I am the most humble individual ever. I do not ever exalt myself. I am just too holy for that. So instead, I wallow in the dirt and I whip myself. I go on long processions or I'm in the Philippines, part of the communities of people that literally get crucified every year. My bones and my wrists, they don't exist anymore because I've gotten crucified so many times, you see. Ah, yes, I am so humble. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not what our Lord Jesus is getting at here with this parable. I think it's much more about despairing of your own works. Claiming that you are holy in and of yourself is exalting yourself. Seeking your own holiness that you may see something in yourself. Well, that is kind of trying to take a higher seat here. When instead we should be trusting in Jesus for our salvation. Now I say this to my shame. If anybody out there is angry that I'm ragging on monks and monastic people and nuns and all of that too much. You know, there was a point in which I was a mystic. I fell into the same trap. I read Brother Lawrence's Practice of the Presence of God. I was huge into A.W. Tozer. I even got into hesychasm. I would be sitting there walking around saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I would just say this over and over and over again. I did the fasting bit. I did quietism as well. I figured, hey, Molino's here. He, uh, he writes this book on quietism. And I figured this would be a great idea for me to see if there's a way to sanctify that. I know the Roman Catholic Church declared it a heresy for various reasons, but I bet you anything I can make quietism work so that I can see God with the eyes of my soul. And this was my number one priority in life. I wasn't giving to charity. I wasn't paying attention to my wife the way I needed to. I wasn't even paying attention to my own health. I wasn't loving myself, so I wasn't loving my neighbor. And the entire time... The entire time I did this, I was in spiritual pain. I thought that if I was just going inward constantly, getting into the hours, I wasn't even a Lutheran at this time, but I was getting into the hours, I was getting into hesychasm and quietism, and I was getting ready to read the cloud of unknowing, and I was always practicing the presence of God, always doing this mystical stuff, and the entire time I despaired. I was in such despair the entire time because I didn't think God actually loved me. The closer I got in devotion to God, the more I understood that I am a worm and a sinner. And none of this that I'm doing here to reach out to God is really going to make me closer to him. Because the only thing you see when you do this is the law. The only thing that I could perceive was how much I had failed God. So a little bit of sympathy for the monks. I get it. You're looking for assurance of salvation. You want to live a holy life pleasing to God. You want to get away from the world with all of its temptations. So you find yourself in a monastic community and you're doing a lot of devotion. But the more devotion you do, the more meditation you do, the more you're going to feel entirely insufficient. You're going to be facing the reality that you are not worthy of salvation. And, well, instead of embracing sola fide, embracing the fact that Christ does save us, you seek your assurance with more works, with more holiness, with more fasting, with more of the hours, with more work in the field, and more works in general. 
If you were somebody who believed you could be saved by your works, monastic life would be the spot. But the more you do, the less you will be assured. It's understandable, but beloved, it's kind of like fighting a fire with dry wood. What we need to do is throw some old chairs on this fire and see if that puts it out. Oh no, it got worse. Time to throw more wood on it. That's how we honestly look at these things. People don't honestly learn. Now again, this is not to poop all over the idea of a monastery if it is indeed a place of retreat and education for the Christians so they can go out and be a better Christian out there in the world. And I'm sure we all appreciate the people out there like Augustine or like Thomas Aquinas who go about teaching people and having some sort of education in the faith. We have to have our theologians, right? And I'm not attacking devotion in itself. God wants us to pray. He does appreciate it if we fast to make ourselves better Christians every now and then. Although fasting should never just be commanded by the church. I mean, this is a matter of personal devotion. St. Paul warns us about that in Colossians and elsewhere. Truly, devotion is a good thing that we should engage in. St. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Yes, this is absolutely true. It's good to be devoted. But the whole of the monastic establishments is based on a lack of assurance in the faith and a desire to be something, to move up from chair to chair in honor so that we can say we are something when we're not. Beloved, we do not need to go be a monk to understand that we are holy. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, St. Paul writes, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's aorist tense, point time, past tense, just about. God glorifies you already when you are a believer, when you are justified by faith in his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a precious truth. Our Lord Jesus says that whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. We do not need to go on endless cycles of self-mortification, whipping ourselves or starving ourselves or harming ourselves in any way, shape, or form to qualify to salvation when Jesus Christ has already accomplished this on the cross for us. We do not need to go be monks when we have the full assurance of the faith in Scripture. It teaches you that, yes, if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and you believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, O baptized believer. And when it comes to holiness itself being sanctified, who does the work of sanctification? Well, in part, us, and we'll get to that. But the Holy Spirit, he, third person of the Trinity, he is the one, God dwelling in you, who works on your sanctification, who spends that precious time with you, working on your heart, making you a better and more holy person. You don't need to be a monk. Now, that said, we do want to take an active part of our sanctification. But there's a different motivation for the Lutheran. We engage in our devotions and in our prayers, in our hours, 
in the prayers that we do with the wreath of Christ, in our quiet time with God, not in order to be more holy, but because God made us holy, because he brought us to salvation. He has already promised us heaven. He has already promised us the new heavens and the new earth, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself, being unified with him in baptism. Being united with Christ like this says, wait a second, if he is holy, then on account of him, I am counted holy by my Father in heaven. So these devotions then are not just qualifying to God, trying to reach this summit of perfection where you can look down at all the unwashed masses and pray for them and lend them some merits and grace that you've earned. No, our devotions are because God has already brought us to that summit and already said, I adopt you as my son or my daughter. You are already holy to me. We pray because we rejoice. We pray because God has already given us that ability to pray for others, and to ask God to have grace upon them and his mercy on them for their sins, not on account of any merit of my own. But we engage these devotions because it is so good to be saved already, to take the plain words of scripture and to go, yes, I am already a saint. Put that S-T before my name, just like St. Paul or St. Augustine or St. Polycarp. Put that S-T there because God has brought me here and I rejoice in it. Of course, I repent of my sins. Of course, I want to engage in spiritual discipline to be better because that makes me even more free. And the Bible says, for freedom, Christ has set me free. So now I get to. Now I can live a life with far more vitality in it, more victory in my life in Jesus Christ. And I hope that for everybody listening, if you struggle with that kind of assurance, not knowing if you are saved or not, well, rejoice. You are, if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you are. Let us engage in the Christian life then with energy, with rejoicing, with, well, happiness. After all, the scriptures do say rejoice always. And if you don't know you're saved or not, you're not exactly rejoicing, are you? But then I mean with all sincerity in my heart, the peace of our God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.